Let us pray. Eternal, almighty God, your word secures our hope and our faith. In you we are brought to life. In you our eyes are lifted to the hills from whence our help comes. Lord, you have gathered us this morning to worship you. And we pray, Lord God, that here in this hour, that our hearts and our souls and our minds and our bodies might be focused on you and on you alone. And we pray, Lord God, that here in this time, that your Holy Spirit may speak through your word, through my words. Lord, we pray that your Spirit will transform us, will draw us closer to you, will pull us deeper into the waters of discipleship. As we wade into Scripture, Lord, may we be pulled in, consumed by love and passion for you. May we be drawn into depths of love and grace. And may we never emerge. Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we continue our journey into Acts. This is the story of the church growing, the church reaching out, the church expanding, the church running into boundaries, and the Holy Spirit pushing the church through them. We're in Acts 17, uh, verses 16 to 34. But first I thought we'd talk about something really controversial. You know, with everything going on in Chattanooga this weekend, uh, it's like, I figure it's only fitting. I figured we'd talk about dessert. We all have favorite desserts. Some people are equal opportunity dessert people. Some people have very strong preferences. And this is probably a good point to stop and remind people that Avery's birthday is in 10 days. Um, so I offer that as a reminder. Um, but we have preferences for dessert. You know, I'm kind of an ice cream and cookies kind of guy, but, you know, frankly, if it appears in front of me, I'm not one to say no. But one of the things that, that I discovered when Rachel and I were dating is that she didn't like pie. And this was something for me to, it was really hard for me to grasp my mind around is how someone couldn't like pie. And so, rather than just sit and berate her for her inability to enjoy pie, I figured that it was time to kind of get to know her animosity towards pie, to come to better understanding of why it was she didn't like pie. And eventually what it came down to was the fact she hadn't really had a lot of good pie. And so I thought, in order to remedy this, I would take her to the place where I had had the best apple pie I'd ever had in my life. And of course, as everybody knows, pie is always better with ice cream. And so I thought that if she experienced this, then it might transform her feelings towards pie. And sure enough, because who can really say no to hot apple pie and cold ice cream? She enjoyed it. She liked it, and now if you put a piece of pie in front of her, she appreciates it and eats it. 
And so it wasn't so much my berating her, telling her about what a terrible person she was because she didn't like pie. It was getting to know her and leading her into an experience with what frankly was one really good piece of pie. And I think, you know, we would agree that that's the way to get somebody to enjoy something they've never tried. And if we can do that with pie, shouldn't we do a similar thing when we're talking about our faith? When we're talking about the gospel message? When we're thinking about how to spread that, how to introduce that to people who have no desire to it, it wouldn't it be far more effective if we get to know people and lead them into an experience, lead them into a relationship rather than simply berate them or talk at them or talk over them. And so what we're talking about in Acts 17 is Paul is in Athens. And Paul is doing evangelism in Athens. Paul is preaching the gospel in Athens. But he does so in a certain way. And so we're going to work our way through this. We're starting in verse 16 of chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and them being Timothy and Silas, who were on their way to Athens, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He was deeply distressed. Paul saw that the entire city was worshipping all these false gods, all these idols, and it affected him in his gut. He was deeply distressed. It mattered to him. So Paul argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Admit it, you've thought that before while I was preaching. What does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the area Pagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. And so what I want to do is I want to stop right here and I want you to notice what Paul does. Paul shows up in Athens. And rather than just show up and stand on a soapbox in the middle of a city, what Paul does is he gets to know the people who are living there. And the people who live there, they love to debate. That's what they're talking about in in verse 21. People, they would spend all day sitting around and talking and debating and discussing ideas. And so Paul goes and engages with these people. He sits and he talks with them. He talks with the Jews in the synagogue, with people in the marketplace, and he's getting to know them. And he's getting to know the city. He's understanding his environment in which he finds himself. So that when he talks to the people about the gospel, he knows where they're coming from. He has a relationship with them. 
He can talk with them rather than just at them. And so he begins in verse 22 to preach. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, He who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives life, gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor He made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and He allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God, and perhaps grope for Him and find Him, though indeed He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we too are His offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now He commands all peoples everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul goes to Athens, and Paul gets to know Athens. He gets to know the people of Athens, what they're like, how they work, how they live, what their relationships and patterns are like. And so when he goes to proclaim the gospel, he begins by doing it by talking about them. By talking about where they're at. And what he does is there's an altar there. And the altar is dedicated to an unknown God. And what Paul does is he says, you, you, you're almost there. He says, you recognize that we are created to worship God. That we have, in verse 27, he talks that we have a hunger inside of us for God. That since we're made in the image of God, we're made to seek God. And he says, we're all searching, we're all groping for Him. And in what Paul says, he says, you Athenians, you're almost there. You're incredibly worshiping. But you don't know what it is you're worshiping. You know you need to worship, but you don't know exactly what it is and how you need to worship. And so he says, he says, not only let me introduce you to the truth, but the amazing thing about Christianity is Paul can say, I want to introduce you to a person. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a relationship. 
It's not just knowledge that we have or things we know. It's a relationship we have with a person, with Jesus Christ, who was crucified and resurrected for us. Paul puts this relationship right at the center of his proclamation. And he says to the Athenians, you know that you need to worship, but you don't know what. And let me introduce you to a person of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that a relationship with Christ is transformational. And what happens at the end of this? They hear about the person of Jesus Christ. They hear about resurrection of the dead and some scoff. And friends, that's the way it is. We believe when we do evangelism that it's only the Holy Spirit that can bring a person to faith. And some people will say no. And it's not our fault. Some people say no. Some people believe. Some people join and they say, yes, I want to be a part of this. And others say, we will hear you again about this. And what I think is so important for us as Christians in 21st century Chattanooga, 21st century America, is to believe that Christianity can stand up to rigorous examination. Paul spent all this time in Athens engaged with debating about the merits of Christianity. And that debate is still going on today. And there are all sorts of people who would have us believe that Christianity cannot stand up to rigorous examination. That science or medicine or these other technological fields will eventually make Christianity irrelevant. That they'll discover something. They'll discover a God particle that will suddenly replace God. And the good news is that we don't have to be afraid of science. When I hear about scientific discoveries, it leads me to wonder that God created such a complex world. That God, who is the master of all of this, who has orchestrated all of this, that His mind is big enough and powerful enough to comprehend all of this. We don't have to be afraid of science. When people ask big questions, when people say, we'll hear you again about this, but we have questions... We can revel in that because we know that every question points to Christ and that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And we may not individually know all the answers, but there are scholars out there who study these things. And for every question that comes out, I believe that Christianity has answers that are rigorous and robust and that can stand up to whatever curiosity is out there. And so as we hear, there was the creationist debate uh, some months ago. We can engage in that debate, and we don't have to be afraid that at the end of it, Christianity will be found wanting. For 2,000 years, people have been trying to tear down the church. They can try all they want. The church is not going anywhere, because it stands on Jesus Christ, and He alone is eternal. And He invites us into that. Christianity is about a relationship. We can trust in Christ. And so when we put our faith in Him, we put our faith in a relationship with a person. And when we talk about our faith with others, we introduce them to Jesus Christ. And we believe the more time they spend learning about Christ, that the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts and they will come to see that He, and he alone it's the way and the truth and the life. Paul went to Athens and engaged in life there. And he put Christ at the center of it. 
And some people said yes, and some people said no, and some people said maybe, but we have more questions. And so when we go out into the world, may we trust that our faith is intellectually robust. And may we trust in the Spirit to lead others to Christ through our proclamation. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, you use each and every one of us to proclaim the gospel. May we proclaim a gospel centered on a relationship with the Savior who died out of love for us and who rose from the dead. May we not be afraid of big questions. May we trust that you are big enough for all of our questions. And may we trust that you and you alone will reign forever. And that you have invited us into that relationship, an eternal relationship with you as Savior. For you have made us in your image. You have called us by name. And we seek you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.